Saturday, I can be caffeinated. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. All right. And now we are lean. We are mean. We are caffeine. I'm not lean. I'm still bloated from my trip to Denver. I mean, that's fine. Is it though? Like I'm I, when I tell you I gained five pounds of bloat and it's uncomfortable. Like I can't. <laughs> I, it's not even that I'm like, oh, no, I'm fat. No, it's uncomfortable. I can't close my fucking pants unless they have like an elastic. Yeah, and why are you wearing pants that don't have an elastic? This is 2021. All pants should be stretch pants. I mean, I understand this, but I invested in, like, jeans because I was bullied by the Gen Zs <laughs> into buying them. Ugh. Non-stretchy skinny jeans. Non-skinny jeans and non-stretchy jeans. Don't let the children tell you what to wear. It's too late. I'm too far gone. Little did I know that I thought that the bullying by the seventh graders would stop when I was like a couple years older. No, I'm fucking 27. And the bullying by the seventh graders, I am still affected by it. Yep. The seventh graders have not changed. Only I have, except not really, because I'm still affected. Look at that high waisted man. He got feminine hips. That's the thing I'm sensitive <laughs> about. That's me, but that's actually me. Yeah. I'm. Oh, but yeah how are you just fucking living my damn life you know i thought you you were like just fucking i was like oh good for you i guess (laughs) not currently sure whatever it's like isn't it hot over there no you know what either way i guess it would be i know this is the worst way to start the podcast but you know the weather's cooled down uh we're in the middle of a heat wave i can see smoke from my apartment well i mean that's just the norm where you live but also yes we are thinking of the pacific northwest Mm -hmm. of seattle and portland and parts of canada you know what all of canada yeah all of canada especially with all of these stories that are coming about at these about these poor indigenous children and these mass graves that keep getting found it's like every time i open twitter it seems like there's more children who need justice because they're finding all of these mass grave sites at these schools and orphanages where these children had no business being kidnapped and sent to in the first place yeah well you kind of set up today's podcast pretty well oh, you are today's podcast on crime culture i'm crime i am culture. fucking living this is it everybody this is our new normal okay this is our new normal this is this week it's the story of a child getting justice so oh hell yeah we love to hear it we love to hear it we wish we heard it more yes we spent uh the first uh couple minutes before recording this figuring out how to pronounce the name and we decided it's Terry Joe Duberalt. I mean, we didn't decide it. The Google man, and I, I mean, it may not be a man. The Google person told us, hey, this is how you say their name. Well, Duperalt. Duperalt. So. So uh, don't blame us. Blame the Google. Blame the Google. Also, if you know where this is going, don't spoil it. It's not a very, very well-known case. Um, the photo I'll get to. It, there's a famous photo regarding this case. Okay. The reason why I know of this case is because it happened on my birthday. Oh, okay. Yeah. So Wait, we did mention it briefly okay. in That's one of the, my birthday episodes. Okay. Um, but here we go. So 
starting okay. off. 41-year-old Arthur Duberalt was a very successful optometrist in Green Bay, Wisconsin. And he Wisconsin. had... In Wisconsin. He had a lifelong dream of living on a sailboat. Like, he loved sailing. He loved the ocean. He lived in Wisconsin, so he wasn't really close to an ocean. But he always wanted True. to, like, be out on the water. Like, that was his passion. Okay. And... um. He got that passion because uh, he recalled the warm waters of the far south that he sailed during World War II. Um, and that was his love, that just being on the water. And uh, he kind of discovered it in the war, which is weird. Mm. Um, so in November of 1961, he decided that he would ditch the brutal Midwest winter and take his family to the Bahamas. Uh, his wife, Jean, 38 years old at the time, son, Brian, 14 years old, and two daughters, Terry Jo, who was 11, and Renee, who was 7, were all very excited for this trip. I mean, who wouldn't be excited to get out of mountains of snow and go to the Bahamas? Yeah. <laughs> I well, can't I think mean, of anybody. Wisconsin also cheese country? You don't like cheese. Everybody else in the world likes cheese. That's so. not true. That's not true. My friend at the sandwich place over by my apartment also does not like cheese because we have discussed it. And the other day when I got a sandwich, I'm sorry for this banter, but I feel it is important to my no cheese ism. While she and I were chatting, I watched her without me having to tell her right on my ticket. No cheese in all caps underlined twice. So if you're listening to this, I don't remember your name, but I remember that you also hate cheese. And thank you very much for my cheeseless sandwich that I got yesterday. Anyway. <laughs> yes, they did live in Wisconsin. That was a very Jeez. long uh, rant about something adjacent to Wisconsin. I mean, it's like they're called, I think, the cheese heads. Yeah, I don't think it's like an adjacent thing. I think that it's the land of the cheese. Yeah, they have like hats that have that are cheese. Yes, they they like have curds or something. Anyway, whatever now little Miss Muffet had. We're leaving Wisconsin. They're gonna go Thank to the Bahamas. God. No offense so, if you're listening from Wisconsin. <laughs> I loved Wisconsin. It was fucking incredible. I loved it there. Anyway. I would love to go, but I don't think there's anything I can eat. The plan was <laughs> to sail from Fort Lauderdale in Florida to the Bahamas over a week with the possibility of extending the trip if it went well. And this was kind of going to be like their test run to see if they could all live on a boat because that's what uh, Arthur Duperall wanted to do. So he's like, okay, so we're going to sail to the Bahamas, see how we all do on a boat for a while, and then kind of make the plunge in like buying a boat and like trying to do that full time. What year is this? This was in 1961 that's it okay because i was like who just ups their life and goes we're gonna live on a boat and no that's what you did in like the 60s and 70s Hit you upped your life and yeah 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 all right um, carry on so they arrived in florida and chartered the 60 foot two-masted sailboat named the bluebell and hired Ooh. decorated world war ii and korean war pilot and well-known local yachtsman julian harvey age 44 to captain the ship the last traveler in the group was going to be Harvey's sixth wife. Whoa. Yeah. 34-year-old. No uh, yes. We'll get to that. Uh, she's 34-year-old aspiring writer and former TWA flight attendant, Mary Dean. Um, they had just been married that July. So it was still pretty yeah. new. That, this is their honeymoon. <laughs> pretty much. <laughs> So, on the morning of November 8th, 1961, Captain Harvey steered the boat away from the dock and began the Duperalt's long-awaited adventure. Over the next four days, Harvey piloted the Blue Bell East towards the tiny island chain of Bimini. 
I think that's how you say it. Bimini? Bimini. Are you it's one of those one rich of people the... that's been to the Bahamas? No, no. Are you fucking ki- You know me. No, um, I hate to say this, but one of the um, drag queens on Drag Race UK this past season was, her name was Bimini. Amazing. And Perfect. so I just, yeah, that's how I know it. I can that's imagine it's gorgeous. Not because I'm rich, it's because of, she's gorgeous. So, yes. There we go. Well, uh... They started there and then they went farther east to Sandy Point, which is a village on the southwestern tip of the great Abaco Island. I don't uh, know that one. I'm not that rich. All right. The group and there's spent, no drag queen that I know of no. named that. <laughs> the group spent the week enjoying themselves snorkeling and collecting shells on the white and pink beaches. So obviously like the That's best, cool. the best trip in like, I want to go to what a white is, and pink beach. Yeah. Right. It's usually like, at least here, it's like gray and cold in November. So I can imagine just like snorkeling on like a gorgeous beach. You're just like away from everything and you're like, <laughs> bye fuckers. Well, yeah. And the beaches in America, for the most part, are not white or pink. They're usually littered with plastic and yeah. hypodermic needles, depending on where you go. If you go to ones in Connecticut, they are. So like, yeah, uh, so gorgeous. That's, sign me the fuck up. The reason why they even left, I will never know. But yeah, early on Sunday, November 12th, that's my birthday, Dubrault and the Harveys stopped by the office of Sandy Point Village Commissioner Roderick W. Pinder uh, to fill out forms before leaving the Bahamas and returning to the United States. While there, Dubrault told Pinder, quote, this has been a once in a lifetime vacation. We'll be back before Christmas. End quote. Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's he, already uh, before Christmas. <laughs> exactly. Right. Uh, so obviously everything was going phenomenally and. Everyone was enjoying themselves, and I think he had made the decision, okay, I think we're going to buy a boat now. Like, okay. it wasn't in any of these articles, but, like, it, it just sounded like everything had gone so well, and he was so, like, affirmed in what he knew he already wanted to do that it was just like, okay, we got to get this moving. Live your dreams. Right? Like, do it. I, I do have, like, a couple questions in terms of logistics, like, how you're going to, I don't know, educate your kids, and, like... Is is Harvey going to be with them the entire time? Now? No, he was he was the uh, the captain of this boat because uh, I don't think Arthur was an experienced sailboat. So uh, that was captain. my fear. Yeah, that was my fear. Because then Arthur, honey, how are you going to do this? Well, you get you get like classes and all that shit. Yeah, but, but you have to I be mean, near an ocean for that to be a yeah, possibility but it's also quite a few classes that you need it's not easy to learn how to sail a boat we'll see i didn't see that in any of my articles that was just okay. my assumption so okay and i'm not i'm not blowing smoke up anybody's ass i wasn't that rich that i could go to bimini but i was rich enough that i taught sailing for several summers so <laughs> it's not it's not a <laughs> it's, it's i know I'm a white that ass bitch. sailboat ass knowledge anyway. my boat. so that night Mary Dean prepared a dinner of chicken cacciatore and salad, and it was to be the last meal served on the Bluebell. Around 9 p.m. that evening, 11-year-old Terry Jo had headed toward her sleep quarters below deck. Throughout the rest of the trip, her little sister Renee had been sleeping there too, but on this night, she stayed with her parents and brother in the cockpit. Sometime later in the middle of the night, Terry Jo was startled awake by the sound of running and stamping above her head and her brother yelling, quote, help, daddy, help. End quote. And then there was silence. And she was so terrified and disoriented that she 
didn't know what to do, but after five minutes, she built up the courage to cautiously creep out of her cabin and peek up the deck and into the main cabin, which kind of functioned as, like, the kitchen dining room during the day. It had one of those things that, like, the the seats and the table kind of collapsed and you, like, mm-hmm. made it into a bed. Mm-hmm. Um, so in that room, she saw her mother and brother lying crumpled in a pool of blood on the floor and guessed that they had been dead. Oh, my God. Yeah, she's 11. She continued up the stairs and saw even more blood, possibly a knife and uh, a gun, she said, but wasn't sure, on the starboard side of the cockpit. When she climbed onto the deck and turned toward the front of the boat, Captain Harvey suddenly appeared, screaming, quote, get back down there, end quote. He then tried to shove Terry Joe below deck. She ran down back to her bunk, but she heard sloshing. Oily smelling water started to seep into the cabin and quickly cover the whole floor. She knew the boat was taking on water, but she was too afraid to move from her bed. So she just sat on her mattress as the cabin started filling up with water. Right. The article from Reader's Digest that describes the next suspenseful moments kind of summed it up perfectly. They said, quote, suddenly she saw the captain's dark form silhouetted in the cabin's doorway. He had something in his hands, possibly her brother's rifle, and stood looking down at her. The only sounds in the room were of his heavy breathing, the thundering of her heart in her ears, and the slap of the rising water against the bulkheads, end quote. But instead of killing her, Harvey turned and walked back up the stairs, leaving Terry Joe cowering in her bunk. He didn't do anything. He just stood there with a gun, looked at her. Um, in a video that I saw of an interview with her, she's like, we made eye contact and he didn't do anything. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that for once, sexism is a good thing because he probably was like, well, she's just a little girl. What's she going to do? Well, I mean, spoiler alert, he's sinking the boat. He knows the boat's going down. Yes. If he gets in the, the one lifeboat that's there, then she's just going to die on this. Yeah. But what's she going to do? Like, oh, well, her brother could probably figure it out because he's a man and he was born with man brain cells. And that's how this works. Well, he killed the mother, brother. And father. He killed the adults. Yeah, presumably sister. uh, It wasn't found out yet. Yeah, but she was there. So, like, you know what I mean? Like, the little sister, it's a matter of convenience. I'm trying to go from, like, a a meninist point of view. Yes. She's there. He also killed his sixth, sixth wife. Now we know what happened to the other five. Well, we're going to get to that. Mm-hmm. So soon, soon the water reached the top of the mattress and Terry Joe knew that she had to get out. Again, in that uh, interview, she said, I knew I had to leave when my mattress started floating. Oh, my God. Yeah. She waded through the waist deep water to the stairs and saw Harvey on the top deck. He had launched the dinghy with the lifeless body of her little sister inside. Oh, my God. Terry Joe asked him if the ship was sinking and he said it was and shoved the rope for the life raft into her hands. Still in shock, she dropped the rope and the dinghy slowly started to float away. Harvey dove into the water and swam after it and that was the last she saw of him. Oh. Yeah. So with the boat sinking and the life raft gone, Terry Joe had to think very quickly. She remembered that there was a cork life raft strapped to the main cabin which was rapidly taking on water as she was thinking of it. Just as she was able to untie the small raft, the deck sank beneath her. She was barely able to crawl onto the raft before the bluebell disappeared beneath her feet. Oh, my God. Wow. Yeah. Uh, it said, they said in um, one interview and a couple of different articles, too, that 
as she was untying it, one of the ropes to the raft was getting stuck on the boat. So it was kind of pulling the raft down, but somehow it managed to like untangle itself and it, it popped back up. So God. she wasn't underwater for long, but that w- must have been uh, immensely horrifying. Yeah. Uh, just going like horrifying that moment, but also everything that led up to that moment. Like I can't imagine this girl in any type of headspace to even think that there was that life raft there. Right. And that's one of those things. It's like when you go to a place or you're in a situation, like know your exits, know your Mm -hmm. like life-saving strategies and everything. Because I mean, she could have easily been one of those kids. I know I was that when you were told like the life safety instructions, you're kind of not truly paying attention. Cause you're like, Oh, my parents know. And like, they're (laughs) listening and like, they're gonna everything's gonna be fine unless so, unless you're born with anxiety fine. yeah in which case you pay rapt attention <laughs> i mean now i pay more attention because i'm an adult and i'm like everything's gonna break so yeah i mean my body everything's gonna collapse no. yes um but anyway so terry joe then had to face that night alone she had no food, no water, and was wearing only a thin white blouse and pink pants. That Her pajamas, pretty much. Yeah. Clouds obscured the sky, and all she was able to see was darkness. A sudden shower drenched her, and she began shivering uncontrollably. Oh. She made it through the night, but the next day, the temperature quickly rose to the high 80s, and she had no relief from the sun. The flimsy cork float began to disintegrate beneath her, uh, which left her feet and legs dangling in the water. She said that the pretty much the entire time uh that she's on this raft which spoiler alert is going to be a couple days um Mm. she was in like pretty much waist deep water the entire time oh my god yeah um so with her feet and legs dangling in the water they started getting bitten by a parrot fish (gasps) oh no yeah so not like a shark or anything but a fucking fish with like a little like yeah which must have been a huge pain in the ass. No, it was a pain in the foot. <laughs> exactly. So <laughs> another night passed and then another day. And on the second day, there was a glimmer of hope. Terry Joe spotted a small red plane flying above her. She shouted and waved at one point and the plane dipped in her direction close enough that she thought she could see the detail on the bottom of the plane itself. But the angle made it impossible to tell if the pilot had actually seen her. Ugh. The chances were slim that someone in a passing ship or a plane would spot Terry Joe. Her white float and blouse and blonde hair made her look like just another white cap on the yeah. endless ocean. At one point, she could see dark figures in the water. She was terrified as they came closer, but soon realized that they were dolphins. <gasps> they came so close that she could stare straight into their eyes, and they stuck around for hours. Hey, I mean, dolphins are still pretty scary. They they don't fuck around. They're pretty... They really fuck around. They they really <laughs> do fuck around, yes. that I shouldn't have said that. But, I mean, I don't think I would go, oh, thank God, a dolphin. I wouldn't go, oh, no, a dolphin. But I w- definitely wouldn't be... When I, the option I'm just going to be side-eyeing the dolphins. <laughs> when the option is, like, sharks or dolphins, I'm going to go yes. dolphins. Yes, I will hold them at arm's length, but And yes. I think she I think she was, like, really comforted at that point. Also, she's an 11-year-old girl. She's Who doesn't probably in her dolphin face. Yes, 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 I was good. Yes. Yeah, so um, she, w- she was really comforted by seeing the dolphins and having them stick around and everything. 
Um, so that scorching day turned into another uncertain night. And then three nights now without food or water, Terry Joe began having hallucinations. Oh my God. She dreamed that she was in the cockpit of an airliner coming in for landing. She saw her father there and he was offering her a glass of red wine. He called out to her, come on, Terry Joe, we're leaving. And that was her dream for a like her hallucination mm-hmm. dream for a couple, uh, couple hours there. That sounds like her, her dad kind of coming to say goodbye. Yeah. Um, the next day was much of the same, but Terry Joe's body was in really bad shape. Mm. After all the time in the sun, she had severe burns. Her eyes were dry. Her lips were bloody and cracked. For most of the time, Jerry jo- Terry Joe had to balance on the edges of the float because most of its rope webbing had broken away. <gasps> From the photos that I could see, it looked like it was one of those things that the flotation was pretty much all around the edge. And then the part that you would theoretically sit in was like one of those like woven rope things. Like, okay. They have them for pools sometimes, but it, like it, a life preserver, but with like those little round donut life preservers, not a life jacket. Yeah. But like a life preserver, but with like a net basically. And yeah. Like that you would square sit or ovular. Okay. Yes. Um, this was more like rectangular, but it, like all of the webbing just started breaking away. So oh, wow. she just had to sit on the edges of this thing. And you know, like if you try to sit on one side, the other side's gonna, like yeah. pops up and like it's just it doesn't work. Yeah, your con- your body is constantly under the stress of trying to balance. Exactly. Um and she was hallucinating more now, imagining a tiny desert island complete with a solitary palm tree. She oh. tried paddling toward it, but it disappeared, and finally she fell unconscious. <gasps> Yeah. When the sun rose on the fourth day, she was close to death. Most of the life raft was gone, and the combination of burns to her body and the lack of food and water were almost too much for this 11-year-old to handle. (laughs) By mid-morning that day, a huge shadow engulfed the raft. Terry Jo opened her eyes to see a giant ship right next to her. She saw people waving on the deck and could faintly hear shouting. The crew on the Greek freighter tried to lower a makeshift raft, but sharks began circling, possibly drawn by the movement of the ship. Nah. Yeah. It was a little while later that Terry Jo was finally suspended in the air and strong hands pulled her to safety before she fell unconscious again on the deck of the ship. So she had spent four days alone on the water with no food, no water in unrelenting heat and freezing cold nights this is right. again it's november yeah in the middle of the ocean the the, the atlantic i would think i mean yes. it could be yeah, the if other they went, way around if they went yeah. from fort lauderdale to to the bahamas then yes it right but i just atlantic? didn't know if she got caught i didn't know if she got caught in a current or anything like i don't know where this ship is where she's being found yeah well she was found literally in the middle of the ocean she had drifted from where the bluebell went down but yeah she she, no one was going to find her it's right it's a minor miracle miracle, yeah that they got close enough and they could see her and didn't think that she was just another white cat yeah well and and but also because the atlantic is so cold like the pacific is a bit warmer the atlantic is pretty much warm like what would you say one month out of the no well no one goes into like the pacific ocean by you without wetsuits and stuff right i mean but that's it's not because it's cold it's more like you're in the water for so long like yeah you're getting out of the water and into the water that's chilly but the water itself is warm like we yeah, went, I went well oh, i just ahead. went to north carolina and i guess it's the way that the the island was situated we went to oak island 
um, if anyone knows it. It's below the Outer Banks. And um, the water was almost like 80 degrees. <laughs> like it That's was, nice. It was like disturbingly warm. Maybe it's a Northeast thing then, because like every time I would go to the beach, either in like Connecticut or Massachusetts or Rhode Island or like even like New York, it would be fucking freezing, even if it was like July or August. Well, the ocean around us, at least, usually starts heating up around like September and then it's yeah. nice for like a, most a of September and yeah. like the beginning of October and then it gets like freezing again as the weather gets cold. But like also being in the middle of the ocean, like the weather changes in an instant. You can have yes. a storm in the middle of the ocean and it not reach shore. So um, obviously, no matter what, she went through a lot. Yes. So... The day after the bluebell went down, the lookout on a Puerto Rico-bound oil tanker spotted a small wooden dinghy floating in the middle of the Northwest Providence Channel. When the captain pulled the tanker closer, a man in the dinghy yelled, quote, My name is Julian Harvey. I am master of the bluebell. End quote. What the fuck? Yeah. So in the days that followed, Harvey told the Coast Guard in Miami that he was the sole survivor of a grave accident. In the middle of the previous night, he reported, a sudden squall damaged the sailboat. His wife and the Duperalts were injured when the mass and rigging collapsed. Gas lines and the engine room ruptured and the ship caught fire and it slowly sank. Harvey said that he had managed to launch the dinghy and life raft and dive overboard, but tangled rigging trapped everyone else on board. And not everyone was buying this story. Some crew I'm members. Shocked. <laughs> yeah, right. Some crew members of the ship that picked him up found him far too calm and collected for someone who had just lost his wife and an entire family of clients and nearly mm -hmm. escaped death. Yeah, uh, and his, his boat, right? Or was that the no, Duperalt's no, boat? Well, it was uh, the Bluebell's owner, Harold Pegg, found so somebody else's boat. Yes, yeah. He was just the, the captain of the boat. It didn't yeah. belong to him, blah, blah, but blah. That's what I'm saying. Like, And also, you fucked up somebody else's boat. Yeah, so Harold Pegg found... Uh, Harvey's account of the mast failure unbelievable, given that the catch had been recently inspected and cleared. Yeah, even well, Harvey's it old takes friend. A lot. What? It takes a lot to like fuck up a mast. Yeah, and also like, yes, everything's going to be inspected before you launch it into the fucking ocean. Yeah, on a on a long voyage, we've all seen Gilligan's Island with like, paying guests. You need to observe. You need to check these things. It's of the essence, or else you go for a three hour tour. The weather starts getting rough, and your rough, and your tiny ship gets tossed. And that's Gilligan's Island. Here on Gilligan's Island. Okay. Um. So even Harvey's old friend, James Boozer, who uh, heard multiple varying iterations of Harvey's story, felt that there were holes. And just a little background. So anyone with a bird's eye view of Harvey's life would have found a few other elements not in his favor of this story. While it's true that Harvey was a skilled World War II bomber pilot and served in the Korean War, he even managed to pull off a dangerous test flight of a modified B-24 bomber. Peers in the military periodically noted that his propensity for ditching missions due to quote-unquote engine failure uh, oh. was kind of a theme with him. Great. By the end of his career in the military, even his supporters noted that his nerves were shot, a fact apparently made clear by the worsening of a facial tick and a stutter. Oh, yeah, and 
this is the part that uh, you'll be interested in. We <laughs> touched on it a little bit. Uh-oh. Then there were the wives. The wives, yes. The wives. Okay, thank you. Yes. Good, good. Let's touch on these wives. So, like I mentioned up top, Mary Dean Jordan was his sixth wife. And until her, Harvey had a habit of wooing, rapidly marrying, and then abruptly dumping his partners, usually with a cursory, I don't love you anymore. He's one of those fuckers. Wooing, wedding, and weaving the wives. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so, his affairs were legend at Eglin Air Force Base in Florida. Um, that's where Harvey was stationed with his second or possibly third. Nobody really knows. Oh, okay. Yeah. His they all wife, just kind of run Joan. together. Yeah. Uh, this was in 1949. But it seems that Mary Dean may have not may not have been the only wife to meet an untimely end by Harvey's hand. Oh, mm-hmm. the plot thickens. Yes. On one rainy night, as it always happens. It's always this, a rainy night. It's always a rainy night. Thunder cracks Harvey, and suddenly there's a body. Yes. Harvey was driving his wife and mother-in-law back from the movies when, as he described it, his car swerved on a bridge and rolled over the side onto the bayou below. The car oh. sank and Harvey alone survived. Shocking. As bystanders dove into the water to look for Mrs. Harvey and her mother, the pilot calmly described, perhaps even boasted, about how he had been able to escape the car while it was in midair. And you didn't think to, like, grab your wife? Yeah, right? Like, I don't care if you're midair. You don't think to, I don't know, grab your wife? Yeah. But not only did the evidence at the scene point to that not being the case, it was apparent that Harvey had made no attempt to save his relatives. Mm Mm-hmm. That checks out. That's believable. Yeah. Nor did he seem overly broken up about their deaths. He soon cashed in his wife's life insurance policy. And there's going to be more on this in a minute. This is why you don't take out a life insurance policy. Or you don't tell anyone you have one. I was about to say, this is why you don't... I don't care if you're married. I don't care if you have children. I don't care if, like, you just want to tell some rando on the street just to get it off your chest. You don't disclose that you have a life insurance policy. because for how much... And for how much, unless it's like a dollar and someone's really desperate. Yeah. We don't, no, 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 no. We don't do this. No. If you leave with one lesson today, it's that. It is that. So, finally, the Bluebell wasn't the first boat to sink under Harvey's watch. Yeah. Hook, yep. line, and sinker here. Then we why would you let go. him out on another boat? And that's not, my question. I'm not victim blaming here i'm gonna preface with that but arthur sweetie don't you want to look into the track record like okay how many successful missions have they had how many times have they you know sunk a boat these are things that you need to look into when you are hiring a captain i mean it's 1961 he's not really gonna like google them or like go to like uh the police and ask for like his whole history like i don't blame the dude of course no i don't blame him but i would i'm like in retrospect i mean it's also like what like three years before gilligan's island comes out because because in that case also people are not going thinking oh you know i should look into captains i don't know man i'm i'm just anyway skipper had been in charge none of this would have happened twice before harvey had filed insurance claims for destroyed boats Both cases, while suspicious, were decided in his favor. Later, friends would admit that in the first wreck, Harvey had probably steered the boat into an obstacle on purpose. And in the case of the second, he flat out admitted to setting this boat on fire. 
oh my god how do yeah. you how do you get to a point where you just go yeah i, I torched it. it yeah i don't know a couple drinks <laughs> was in. i that set the boat ablaze but harvey's history was largely unknown to the coast guard investigators who interviewed him three days post rescue in the long run harvey's dark history and tortured tale wouldn't matter much just as he was wrapping up his testimony for investigators a captain of the coast guard rushed into the room in a scene out of fucking law and order or something he broke the news saying that they had found a survivor <gasps> harvey expe expressed surprise and said that this was wonderful news he then excused himself from the room that he was giving his testimony in and took a cab to a hotel where he freaks the, next, the fuck out the next day the manager at the sandman hotel in miami called the police after the maid smelled something funny coming from the bathroom of room 17 and couldn't get the door open don't behind you fucking the, do it harvey behind the door was the body of julian harvey covered in self-inflicted slash wounds god damn it was yes. he still alive no you said body yeah I, very much uh, dead motherfucker okay he'd left a note addressed to his friends his friend james boozer saying i was gonna quote, say i can't imagine there's more than one yeah it said quote i'm a nervous wreck and just can't continue i'm going out now i guess either i don't like life or don't know what to do with it End or quote. i don't want to be held accountable yeah pretty much yep uh the message also arranged for the adoption of harvey's son and requested that harvey's body be buried at sea this dude's got a kid and he yeah. kills children oh fuck this guy yep. So, after two interviews in which her story never deviated, the Coast Guard came to accept Terry Joe's version of events that the about the night on the Bluebell. Police believe Julian Harvey planned to use the Duperalt's trip as an opportunity to cash in on an insurance policy that he had purchased after he married Mary Dean. He had selected a double indemnity clause, which paid twice the face amount in case of accidental death. Maybe Harvey didn't initially plan to kill the Duperall family, but he thought he had no choice after they heard the struggle between him and Mary. So that's the working theory that like he was trying to kill his wife and one of the family members heard and he then had to kill the whole fit, the whole rest of the family. I mean, I'm not saying kill anybody, but why would you kill your wife or your spouse on a boat where there will be witnesses why not just be like oh honey that was so much fun let's also go back to bermuda but take a different route and be nowhere felix not now i mean mommy's in the middle of a thought why not just talk to her and be like let's go on a jaunt here he is <sighs> well Buddy. if you think about it like it's kind of a good cover if he was able to do it without anyone waking up and seeing because he could play the victim and do like the yelling and screaming that she's overboard and blah 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 and she's dead blah blah, blah. yes and then but also there's but then the whole potential family witnesses. yeah Felix. but he was i guess he was trying to do it without anyone seeing i'm sorry speaking hearing. of trying to do something without anybody seeing or hearing felix is headbutting my microphone all I see in our video chat right now is cat it's a butthole. butthole. Yeah, it's a butthole. He's showing you his butthole. Has he cleaned it today? Because he probably hasn't because he's too fat to reach. It's too pixelated. I can't tell. Yeah, well, count your blessings. It's HD where I'm sitting. Oh, thank you. All right, he's down. All right, good. Dear so, God. after everything, <laughs> uh, interviews, all that stuff, 
Terry Jo returned to Green Bay to live with her father, sister, and three cousins. When she was 12, she changed the name of her, she changed the spelling of her name to Terry, T-E-R-E. Uh, you'll okay. probably see in uh, the episode of T-E-R-R-Y is how it was spelled when this all went down. Okay. Uh, nearly 50 years later, in 2010, Terry finally revealed the details of the night uh, her family was killed and her days spent adrift in the open water in her book alone orphaned on the ocean and we're going to talk about that in a minute she told cbs news quote i always believed i was saved for a reason if one person heals from a life tragedy after reading my story my journey will have been worth it end quote good yeah good for her honestly because i don't know that i would have the bandwidth to be able to talk about that ever again that's very brave yeah i mean this whole thing is she's very brave and quick on her feet and just a quick thinker but, and you know like kids damn. are so resilient yeah like, being 11 when this goes on like yeah that can like really fuck you up and yeah. obviously she needed extensive therapy oh, and, and all that um but just one of those situations losing your family or being uh stuck alone on this teeny tiny raft in the middle of the ocean for four days one of those things is immensely yeah. traumatizing to go through both in the same day yeah that's is unimaginable it, it's it's not it's something nobody should have to go through but especially a child like that's and the fact that this much. guy the fact that this guy pulled what i will call an ariel castro and like yes. could not face what his sentence could have been like you really you really just fucking chickened out didn't you and no i'm not saying that suicide is a coward's way out never in a million years i would ever say that but he removed himself from the situation to get away from consequences yes he was going to go with his story and collect double the money of his wife's uh insurance policy probably go on to marry again and probably go on to do something similar again well yeah it, yeah it he's just clearly escalating yeah he's 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 like he went from causing a car accident which is like okay that's fucked up that's bad but at the same time he did not straight up kill his wife this time he killed his wife and a family as collateral damage who knows what he could have done next yeah yeah like insane it's, uh, it's it's fuck it's fucked up yeah is what it is it's i don't understand how some people can be so heartless and i wonder if it wasn't even that he was afraid of the consequences or of being of getting caught but just having to face that little girl whose life he completely changed the course of i don't think he cared about her i don't think he cared about her but i don't think he wanted to be faced with this con with with like like i don't think he wanted to have to see yeah the consequences of his actions does that make sense i think he was just desperately trying to avoid going to jail did that too that too no i think that's the main thing yeah terry gets the last laugh because today uh she lives with her husband ron fassbender near the shoreline of lake michigan her three children and her grandchildren live nearby she retired from years working in the wisconsin department of natural resources where she built a career protecting the waterways and the near shore areas for being overdeveloped and altered wow so she actually ended up working near water and living near water and yeah. i i mean that's just that's got to be like uh her dad must be so like 
just looking down and being so happy and proud and like good for her yeah she lived a full perfect and is still living a full perfect life life does not end after 60 or 30 or whatever age she is she's probably somewhere in that range well (laughs) now we're going to talk about the pop culture stuff so the first one is a book written in 1963 by charles williams called dead calm and the description on i think it's like goodreads is quote john and ray ingram are alone on their honeymoon yacht in the pacific uh it should be idyllic but it's not on the near horizon a ship is sinking they rescue its lone passenger a young man who claims he buried his wife and another couple dead from food poisoning but suspicion gnaws at ingram a suspicion only too soon justified soon ingram and his wife are nearly overside with the killer's other victims and that was an exclamation point at the end ah for Uh, emphasis yes it was this book deadcom is the sequel to williams lesser known novel aground uh written in 1960 and it was the basis for an unfinished orson welles film called the deep um, it was also adapted by Philip Noyce as the film Deadcom um, that came out in 1989, and we'll talk about that in a minute. But the book has a 3.79 out of 5 on Goodreads and a 4.2 out of 5 on Amazon. Okay, not bad. Amazon or at your local bookstore. Yes, preferably the local bookstore. Yes. Jeffrey Bezos uh, has gotten enough. I understand if you live in a rural area. Sorry, Haley. But like, I feel bad because I say that. And there are people that listen who live in rural areas. Um, and it's don't feel you don't need to feel guilty. But Haley and me who have like tons of used bookstores near us. We we get to feel the guilt. I get to and go to should. Strand. 18 miles of books. Are they, are they, what is their deal? Are they open? Or for those who don't know, Strand Bookstore is a big bookstore in New York. And they did like a thing. They were like, we have to close down because we couldn't get a PPE, but then they like a, a small business loan for COVID relief, basically. Then they were like, we can't shut down because we got this loan. But then like employees were like, hey, look, they're not paying us for this, even though they got this loan. What is going on there? Because then they were like, we have to close because we have no employees. And then I just stopped paying attention to them. I do not know because I've I can see the city from like down the block, but I have not been there in over a year (laughs) because of COVID. Oh, so that's uh, right. I'm actually going next week. So I will report back god remember covid yeah remember that remember that oh my god it's like a blip hundreds of thousands of people and is still killing thousands of people also a blip that's like the avengers blip yeah jesus christ well the next book is um the last one left written in 1967 by john d mcdonald and the description is When a yacht explodes in the Bahamas, apparently killing six people, Sam Boylston, an attorney from Texas and the brother of one of the victims, is compelled to investigate the circumstances, as does Raul Kelly, a newspaper reporter. After the disaster, the yacht's burning, uh, the yacht's burned captain was temporarily marooned on a small island and soon becomes apparent that the person is ruthlessly one person is ruthlessly manipulating events. I can't read anything. You're fine. But for Boylston and Kelly, uh, proving guilt appears impossible. Dun, dun, dun. Dun, dun, dun. Uh, yes. It's got a four out of five on Goodreads, so pretty good. Hey, yeah, that's pretty good. 
and a 4.3 out of 5 on Amazon. So this looks a-okay. Yeah, I'm down with it. And the last one that I mentioned up top is Alone, Orphaned on the Ocean, written in 2010 by Terry Joe Dubrault Fassbender and um, co-written by Richard Logan. And this is the first time that Terry Joe, uh, who now, like I said, just goes by Terry, T-E-R-E, was fully able to tell her story. And it's co-authored by psychologist and survival expert Richard Logan. um, And it delves into the details of how this little girl survived the murder of her family and the gradual collapse of the small cork float that kept her alive. Right. (laughs) Um, And the aftermath and um, how she reclaimed her life, pretty much. Yeah, she fucking killed it. Yeah. In the afterword of the book, she wrote, quote, What I want to stress to all who read this book is never give up. Always have hope and try to look on the bright side of things. Be positive, be trusting, and try to go with the flow. Have compassion. Give of yourself to those in need and be loving and kind. I believe uh, that what you give comes back to you. Uh, What a great outlook for somebody who was dealt such a shitty hand that she just turns it around and like uses it as something for others to to collect inspiration from i mean we've seen it a million uh, times like these people that go through these horrible things that you and i can never imagine ever living through let alone like my brain (laughs) being able to process anything after something like that and they come back with like such strength is unreal unreal i can't even imagine it, it's i mean and there are so many cases i think one of the reasons why people notice it and take note of it it, it it's not an easy thing to do it's so easy to get hardened by something terrible happening to you or by a series of terrible things happening to you it's so easy to let that affect you in a way where it's you just become hardened and mean and angry and there uh, she'd have every right to be all of those things or to close herself off and like she did none of those things. Well, she could be she could be so angry because she yeah. didn't get to have real justice. She, Harvey never saw his day in court for no. what he did to her whole family. Dick. Yeah. But again, she's living her best life. The book has mm-hmm. a 3.71 out of 5 on Goodreads and a 4.4 out of 5 on Amazon. You love to see it. Love to see it. Uh now on to the movies. We have Dead Calm, which I mentioned earlier mm-hmm. from 1989, and it's an Australian thriller directed by Australian filmmaker Philip Noyce and filmed around the Great Barrier Reef nice. um, in about like six months. And uh, some actors in it, Sam Neill from Jurassic mm-hmm. Park and The Hunt oh, for Red October. Oh, okay. Yes. Nicole Kidman, oh, Practical Magic, Moulin Rouge, and Lion. I think I know her. And Billy Zane, who was in a bunch of stuff, Back to the Future, Titanic, and The Case of the Hillside Stranglers. He's the douchebag from Titanic. Yes. Oh, you love him. He's apparently the nicest dude in person, too. And I was like, it's always the ones that play assholes. It's always the ones that play assholes. Yep. Uh, Speaking of people playing assholes, I just watched on Hulu uh, a movie that I had never heard about that came out relatively recently called spree joe creary's in it from stranger things it's a fun movie it's it's a a horror comedy it's good so go ahead and watch that i'm Um, i'm into it but this movie has uh an 83 percent on rotten tomatoes i know rotten tomatoes is problematic not spree wait why is rotten tomatoes problematic 
See, we're it's all going to learn by, today. It's owned by, I think, Warner Brothers. What did Warner Brothers do? They're obviously Warner Brothers movies are going to be rated higher on Rotten Tomatoes because it's owned by the studio. The more you think, fucking know. I'm I sitting think here IMDb, thinking to myself, they did something. Like I thought you were talking about that whole Paddington thing about how Paddington is now no longer 100% fresh. It's like 99% or something like that. And people are pissed. Well, isn't, uh, I think IMDb is owned by Amazon, right? So any Amazon Prime stuff is going to have a higher score. That wouldn't, that wouldn't surprise me. Though I did just look it up and Rotten Tomatoes is owned by Fandango. Fandango. Okay. Yes. That's I don't know is. who owns Fandango, but the I mean, it's always steeper. possible. It, but it anyway, it really does. It's an 83% on Rotten Tomatoes. I don't care about that. But the 63% audience score, it has over 25,000 ratings. Damn. So it's the audience score that really makes That's a difference. That's what matters. Those are the people. And it's it has a, a 6.8 out of 10 on IMDb, whatever that means. That, I mean, it's not an Amazon movie, so it's probably accurate. I don't think that's I don't think that's the case either because I think IMDb only goes off of user ratings. Does it? I believe so. I believe it only goes based off user ratings. We'll we'll dig into this further and uh, adjust how we uh, no. talk about movies. No, let's dig into this now. No, let's do it on a different. <laughs> And not in the middle of an episode. But anyway, Amazon, uh, not Amazon. Oh, Jesus fucking Christ. IMDb. It's the chip you in your brain. It'll give you like fun facts on movies and stuff about like filming. And I yeah. always like, I always look at that. I think it's pretty interesting. So for this movie, they said that before filming, Nicole Kidman took lessons from the owner of the store, the Storm Vogel, which is the yacht that they used in the film mm-hmm. on how to operate the ship. And during oh. the storm sequences near the end of the film, she's actually piloting the yacht. What a fucking queen. Right? Uh, I love her. I really do. Yeah. But like, God, that's, you know, it's so easy to just be like, I'm not going to do this. Somebody hire like a stunt double. Somebody just. No, she's good. Let me just put my hands on it and go back and forth. She turned 20 during the production. Jesus Christ. How long has this woman been working? And the cast and crew held a massive party at a nearby isolated island. And, that's fun. Uh, that could have yeah, gone one That or must two have ways. been fucking incredible. But anyway, that must have been the inspiration for Fire Festival. It didn't work out that way, but yes. So, but this year, actually, on Mark Maron's podcast, Sam Neill expressed some discomfort over the fact that he was twice Nicole Kidman's age when they played a couple in this film. Good, you know, I'm glad that that's that he was forty to, and she was twenty. Well, and also that that's icky to somebody who's not a viewer. <laughs> Who's somebody yeah. who's part of this? Because but anyway, as we said, Sam Neill actually met his wife while making this film. Oh, that's so cute! Yeah. See, the fun facts are fun. Yeah, we like the wife. I mean, we like the other ones too. But like, yes. that, that's so sweet. Um, there was another movie, kind of. So Orson Welles worked on a film adaptation of Dead Calm which is the unfinished film titled The Deep. Uh, He worked on it from 1966 to 1969. And Wells produced and wrote the film, as well as played the role of Russ Brewer opposite Gene Moreau and Lawrence Harvey. Mm -hmm. The film is incomplete and will likely remain that way. There were several, several major scenes that were never shot, and portions of the soundtrack remain unrecorded. Filming stopped when finances dried up and star Lawrence Harvey died. According to... Peter Bagdanovich, 
The only portion of the film not completed was an explosion toward the end of the story. Uh, later, part of Jean Moreau's dialogue was lost, and she was never asked to re-record it. Currently, the film exists in two work prints, one in black and white and the other one in color. Um, the film was actually supposed to be shown in color. And it's held by the Munich Film Museum, which reportedly is now looking into the possibility of new footage being held privately in France. Although the production was deeply troubled, many of the people involved have spoken highly of the film, including lead Jean Moreau, who in 2000 looked back on the film as a, quote, fantastic experience, noting that, quote, the only disastrous thing was later on the film disappeared, end quote. So maybe one day will get something of that film but it doesn't seem likely likely yeah yes um one quick thing i'd like to note it's peter bogdanovich bagdanovich oh, sorry bogdanovich bogdan i wrote bogdanovich but right, I, you said bag twice no. <laughs> just now even when i said. i can't say fucking anything i know i and i normally wouldn't he's just he's kind of a big deal and i feel like that would be something that somebody would be like um Actually, it's I don't Peter care Bogdanovich. Of, I don't and care now instead um it's me doing the um actually. So it hurts less. I have three more notes <laughs> and then you can yell at me. I mean, I don't need notes to yell at you. I can do that on my own time. There's a famous image of Terry <laughs> Joe's rescue. We're probably going to put it on the Instagram. <laughs> it's that she's yelling. <laughs> it was taken by a crew member of the rescue ship and graced Life magazine soon after she was found. It's also the cover for her book. Oh, wow. It's a very famous image. It's this poor little girl dressed in just like a thin white outfit on this teeny tiny little cork float in the middle of the fucking ocean. This is, this is before or after she was rescued? Like when they found her and she, they were getting ready to like lift her onto the boat, he took this photo. I'm sorry, you're gonna take pictures of this kid and not fucking help? Well, they were. They were working on it. I mean, he it, wasn't working on it. It took them a while to actually get something to throw over to like get her up again. There were sharks around. And yeah, and you're taking she was pictures. Unconscious. Um, in September 1988, Oprah Winfrey reunited her with the freighter captain who saved her. Such a fucking Oprah move, man. That's such an Oprah move. We love Oprah. Oh, that's so cute. Yeah. That must have been beautiful. Exactly. And the last really nice note is, like I said earlier, it's a true miracle that Terry Joe was saved. And yes. when she was found, she was floating on a small white craft. Her hair was sun bleach blonde and she wore a pale pink uh, shorts and a white shirt. Mm -hmm. So she was almost impossible to see. Yeah. After the ordeal, the Coast Guard mandated that rescue equipment must be orange to increase visibility against the seawater. So she's oh, wow. the reason why, like, life rafts and stuff are orange. Yeah, she changed, like, so many lives. Yeah. She, I, the amount of people that must have been saved because yes. of that one little thing. And it's so crazy to think that, like, you see, like, um, life rafts and, like, um, what's the, th the thing that goes over your head? Life vest? Yeah, yeah, Life Fest. You see those, and yes, obviously they're orange. Mm-hmm. Like, it just makes so much sense. Yeah. And I've never seen it any other way. The fact that something wouldn't be is so foreign. Right. Damn. But, yeah. So that's it. That's Terry Joe. Terry. Terry. Yeah, Terry now. Good for her. Terry, uh, Terry Duberalt Fassbender. Mm-hmm. 
I had to see if she was related to Michael. I was yes. wondering the entire I time, it. I but I wasn't going to say it. I, I was like, there's anything. no fucking way. There's no fucking way. It's probably a more common name than we think, but like, Ooh, goddamn! Can you imagine? Yeah. What are the odds, man? But that's that. Yeah. Like I said, we'll post, uh, the photos and stuff on Instagram. Oh, and, uh, I love the when website, we do a happy one. Yes. The website's crimeculturepodcast.tumblr.com, and there you'll find all of the links to our Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and uh, I think our email link is on there, too. We're crimeculturepod at gmail.com. Send us pictures of your animals. Please. Puss pics. We want to see cats all day long. And dogs. And, and dogs. And we've seen birds and hamsters. And hamsters and chickens. Yes. We love to see them all. If they, if they move, send it over. Yes, you can also join our Patreon. We're working on some like fun stuff for Patreon because uh, at a certain level of our Patreon, you can uh, get a video chat with us once mm-hmm. a month. And we had a very fun video chat uh, this past month. Well, it's actually on the first, but whatever. It, it, um, it, it shit happens. <laughs> shit happens. It's a fun time over there, and you should join. We're working on, like, other cool stuff. Yes. We're, we're going to announce something uh, later on this summer, and then probably at the beginning of next year, and we have so many things to work on, and um, that's that's that. Yeah, and shout out to Lucian. He was our little chit-chatter on our live little chat, Patreon chat that we did, and then... We've got we've got Stevie. Stevie just bumped up their donation. Hell yeah! And we appreciate it. And it's never it's never like a requirement. It's just I think actually Stevie bumped it up because it's time to dethrone Lucian as the de facto chooser of 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 the the uh, episode. The poll. Yes, the Patreon poll. So please, please, children, no fighting. <laughs> please do not pick two episodes <laughs> i don't know what we gotta do then we gotta figure something you're, you're out we gotta figure out a tiebreaker yeah i don't want to be the tiebreaker i can't choose one or over the other that's sophie's choice do, write them both down and then pick see them out of a hat cat sniff <gasps> i like that so much better and better yet i'll take a video and post it to the patreon so not only that we'll be given the puss picks for once <gasps> incredible look at us brainstorming live who would have thought anyway not me (laughs) um yeah so all that stuff website instagram twitter whatever it is not linkedin uh, we will see you next tuesday Bye. bye